It's great to see you all this morning. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 20 in your copy of God's Word or on your phone. Go ahead and pull up John chapter 20. That's where we're going to be today. Like Joe said, my name's Chad. I get to be one of the pastors here, and I'm just so thankful for the privilege of being able to serve with you. I know that last Sunday, uh, Pastor Chris mentioned that his father was not doing well, and many of you know that his father went to, went to be with Jesus uh, this week, and the service was last week. Chris did a phenomenal job honoring his dad uh, in the midst of those services and all that took place there. And I just want to extend a thank you to you as a church, because while Chris and his family did a great job honoring his father, you as a church did a great job honoring your pastor. Thank you so much for the way you've prayed for him and cared for them and extended uh, your condolences and just shared grace and kindness with them. It's such a privilege and an honor to serve the people of this church, and I'm really grateful for the way that you served him in this past week. Actually, one of the things I'm reminded of in, in Proverbs um, no, I believe it's Psalms, actually. It says that we don't grieve as believers. We don't grieve like those who have no hope because our hope is in Jesus. And we know that someday we'll see our loved ones again. And all of us at some point will face that very necessary ending that God designed because it's been written into a book. Yet in that moment, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. But what it doesn't say is that we don't grieve right? We absolutely grieve. We just don't grieve like those who have no hope. And most of that is about having Christ in our life. And some of that is about the gift of God that is given to his people with friends and because of friends like you. So thank you so much for the way you've cared for our pastor and his family. Really well done. Thanks for doing that. Let's take a look at John chapter 20. That's where we're going to be today. And many of you know we're trying to read through the Bible together this year all, all, all at the same time, same passages of Scripture. And you may have noticed if you're keeping up with the Bible reading that every day this week there was one passage that came up over and over and over again. That's going to happen uh, each week between now and Easter because we're really getting ready for Easter Sunday. And the passage that we're going to look at today and each week, the, the passage that repeats is the passage that we're going to preach on each Sunday. And so if you've not been keeping up with the reading or if you just, you just walked in and you didn't know we were doing that, well, that's great. Just start where we are, jump in. If you can't read all four chapters or five chapters or however many, read a verse or two a day, read a chapter a day, read something from Scripture every day. I can't overemphasize how important it is for us to be in God's Word and to read what He has to say to us. He reveals Himself to us through His Word. And it's just such a great practice and a great privilege we have to be able to hear the voice of God through this book that he's given to us. And so I hope that you'll participate in that. And, and you know, one of the things that I do whenever I read God's Word on a daily basis is I journal. And since we began this back in January, one of the things I've been doing with my journal is I've been taking a piece of it, and some of you know this already because you see it or you follow it or you make fun of it or whatever, but I'm taking about 60 seconds every day to take a part of my journal and to just make a quick recording of it. So I take about 60 seconds of my journal and I make a quick recording of it and I drop it out on social media, places like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, stuff like that. And so it's a 60-second Devo. I record one every day and it's based off of my reading of God's Word. And so I thought today, that I, as I read through today's passages and kind of thought through what my journal would be, I thought, well, 
I'm going to have to record my 60-second Devo. When could I? I know. I could do that during the service because one of the points that I'll make during the sermon is actually kind of a heart behind the journal that I wrote out this morning. And so could you all help me? Would you all help me make my 60-second Devo today? Would that be okay if we do that? Okay, now it's really simple. You don't have any lines you have to say apart from the fact that in a minute I'll be videoing and while I'm videoing, uh, I'll say, uh, say hi everyone and I'll put the camera in front of you and I'll, you just wave and say hi, okay? So that's, that's your only part. Do, you, do, we need, do we need to practice? Right, let's practice that. Say hi everyone. Oh, that's awesome. Very, very good. And when I do that, I'm going to put the camera like this and I'll just kind of wave it across in front of you. But here's the thing. Um, in the first service, uh, we had an outtake because the first time I tried this, I flipped the camera around and started to do this. And while my hand went that way, my phone went that way. And so we're going to try not to reenact that in this service. And so I don't know which service is I'll try to include everybody, but we'll have outtakes, I'm sure. But can you help me make uh, today's video? That'd be all right. Now, here's the thing. I don't think we can really make today's video without, I mean, it's based on the passage of scripture we're going to read. It's the journal. And the journaling is kind of the beginning of my preparation for preaching. It's not everything I do, but it's the start of the thing. So before we make the video, let's read the passage, okay? So stand with me in honor of reading God's word, and then we'll make our 60-second devotional together here in just a moment. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19, we're going to read verses 19 through 29. And so here's what the word of the Lord says. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now I'm going to pause for just a second to make certain we understand the context. Jesus has died on the cross. And the disciples are just terrified because he was convicted as a criminal and they're afraid people are coming after them now. And here they are in this locked room hiding away and Jesus shows up right in the middle of them. The resurrected Jesus shows up right in the middle of them. And the first thing he says, peace be with you. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now, verse 24 through 29, I want you to pay close attention to because Thomas is really the heart of our story today. Now, Thomas called the twin. One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to Thomas, We have seen the Lord. So Thomas said to them, Unless I see his hands and the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then Jesus said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your, your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thank you so much. You may be seated. And like I said, I kind of wrote out my journal a little bit earlier today, and so I, uh, I have that kind of ready, but I'd like for you to, to help me. And I'm going to try, ladies, I'm going to try not to throw my phone at you, but if I do, please catch it. That'd be great, okay? So you guys are ready? All right, so here's how, here's how we're going to do this. Here we go. It's Sunday, and I'm at church with a few friends. Say hi, everyone. Oh, you did that so much better than the first service. (laughs) If you're keeping up with our reading plan, there was one passage we read every day this week. It's the one I'm about to preach. Yeah, that's going to take more than 60 seconds. Uh, To get ready for Easter, we're focusing on encounters that Jesus had that convinced people that the resurrection was real. John 20 tells the story of Thomas. You know him better as Doubting Thomas. Now, it's not really accurate to say that the disciples were at church the first time Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection, but they were all together, except Thomas. He wasn't in the room where it happened. We don't know why, but whatever his reason was, Thomas nearly missed Jesus because Thomas missed spending time with Jesus' people. I hope you make worship with your church family a priority. Don't miss a week. Your faith inspires others, and their faith strengthens yours. And by faith, we can face our doubts and find genuine answers as we worship Jesus together. That's all of it. Good job, y'all. That was great. Really, really well done. So now I'll edit that down, and we'll drop a 60-second Devo out. Uh, on, on social media later, and all of your beautiful faces will make it so much better than normal. <laughs> and so thanks for doing that. That's great. You know, there's a, a number of things that I notice about this passage, and the first one that I want you to notice, I said in the 60-second Devo, what the disciples were doing in that moment was not church, right? We had Jesus' people all together, and they were together because they were afraid. And, and we don't really know why Thomas wasn't with them. Maybe Thomas was like, forget this. I'm, I'm afraid. If we're all together, then if, if they catch us, they'll catch us all, and I'll be the designated survivor. So I'm going to run over here and, and do something else. Uh, so maybe he was there. Maybe he missed it for good reasons. Maybe it doesn't really say why he missed the meeting. But we know that Thomas wasn't there the first time that Jesus appeared to all of the disciples together. And you know, that was miraculous. The doors were locked. How'd he get in? Was it a Santa Claus moment? No, it wasn't a Santa Claus moment. It's Jesus being Jesus and miraculously showing up to bring peace to his disciples. Yet Thomas wasn't there. And I think that's really our first point from this passage. The first idea that I think we have to catch is that Thomas nearly missed Jesus because Thomas missed spending time with Jesus' people. Did you see that? Thomas nearly missed the resurrected Christ because he missed spending time with Jesus' people. Now, I don't know if you really know or understand or have thought too deeply about what takes place in this space on a Sunday morning when we come together for worship, but I can tell you what this is not. 
This is not a performance by me as a pastor delivering a speech to an audience filled with people. It's not a performance by Joe and the worship team and all the other worship leaders. It's not a performance by them to entertain you or, or to do anything. It's actually not, this really isn't so much a stage as it is a platform. Some of us have been entrusted with some responsibilities to encourage and to challenge and to inspire the people of our church. But when we come together for worship, there is an audience, but it's not you. We come to this space to worship an audience of one. And that one person that we come to worship is Jesus Christ. And so when I say Thomas nearly missed Jesus because he missed spending time with Jesus' people, the encouragement that I want to give to you is to just reflect on and recognize that when you miss a worship service, you miss a lot. But it's actually better than that. It's not just that you miss a lot, it's that we miss you. Because it's not simply a sermon or a song or a service where Jesus is magnified, that something special. It's not simply because of a preacher or a, or a person in, 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 that's, that's singing and leading. It's really as much about the people in the pew as it is the people in, in the pulpit. Because your faith inspires people around you. And their faith has the opportunity to strengthen your faith. There are things that you have known and you have experienced about who God is and just the magnitude of who Jesus is and the glory of his grace. There are experiences you've had with Jesus that I've never had. There are parts of scripture that you've studied that I've not spent nearly as much time on as you. And every week we have the opportunity to come together as friends and to share the experiences we've had with Jesus. And if you're not here, I miss something. Because you know things about God I don't. And if you're not here, you miss something. Because there are people around you, and people on the pulpit, and people on the platform, who have experiences with God that, that you haven't had. And so the first encouragement that I see from this, this passage is, well, Thomas nearly missed Jesus because he missed time with Jesus' people. And so let me just encourage you, recognize how critical you are to what takes place in this space every Sunday morning. God does miraculous things in the hearts and the minds and the lives of his people. And either you get to witness it, benefit from it, or be the one who delivers it for someone else. Why would you want to miss that? So don't. Be a part of what God's doing in this place every week. Unless you're providentially hindered, come to worship and look for ways you can add value to, encourage, and share your experience of faith with someone else in this place. On Easter Sunday morning, this room at 9, 30, and 11 is going to be standing room only, and we would love for everyone to have a space for worship. And so the easiest way we can do that is to say to you guys who are here all the time, come at 8 o'clock. Let's fill up the 8 o'clock service with people who are here all the time so that we can make room for people who aren't here all the time. Isn't that the definition of a missionary, right? Someone who changes their location or their vocation in order to share the gospel, in order to make room for someone else to hear the goodness and the grace of who Jesus is. And so I hope you'll consider that. You'll pray about that. You'll talk with your family about that and, and that you'll do that. But I hope you'll make attending worship together a priority because just like Thomas, you might be in that space 
where you miss or someone else misses what Jesus wants done in, in their life or in your life simply because you missed time with Jesus' people. Now, as I say that, there is a reality that I think we have to honor, especially in light of this passage. I'm a church guy. I grew up in church. Sometimes it feels like I was born on a pew because my parents joined the church the year before I was born, and I just kind of kept going and kept going. And so what that means for me, in my experience, is that all of the best experiences I've ever had with people, all of them, have been with church people. Man, church people have raised me and encouraged me and helped me. They've taught me things about God I'd never know otherwise. Church people have challenged me. They've, 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 they've given me opportunities that I never would have had otherwise. They've raised my family. Some of you act like grandparents to my kids, and I love it. It's just such a privilege. My best experiences, because I was raised in church and because I'm still here I am, have all happened because and involved church people. And at the same time, because I grew up in church and it feels like I was born on a pew, that also means that all of my worst experiences, all of the most discouraging, depressing, disappointing, maddening, frustrating, all of the most hurtful experiences I've had with people, all of them, have been with church people. How about you? You see, that's part of this passage that I find fascinating. When Thomas was with Jesus' people, what he saw was Jesus. But sometimes, today, here we are a few thousand years later, a couple of thousand years later, sometimes the reason people doubt and deny and deconstruct their faith it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with a bad experience with religious people. And I'd be willing to bet almost everyone in this room, if not everyone, yeah, I bet you have a story of that moment. I, I just find it fascinating that in that generation, first generation Christianity, right after the resurrection, to be with Jesus' people was to recognize that Jesus is here with us. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the number one reason people de deconstruct their faith has nothing to do with Jesus and everything to do with a bad, disappointing, discouraging experience they have with someone, well, like me or someone like you that's bad. And instead of experiencing Jesus, they experience something completely different. Now, we always call Thomas Doubting Thomas, and I get it. 
He's the one who's asking questions. You got to prove it to me. Show me, show me some physical evidence, Jesus. I ain't really, I trust you guys. I like you people, you know, disciples. I hear what you're saying, but I'm going to need a little more than your word because I've walked with you guys for three and a half years and I know you're crazy people. And so I'm going to need a little more proof than that, Thomas is saying. So here we are calling him Doubting Thomas. And maybe it's important for us to recognize, maybe you need to hear a preacher say what I'm about to say, because maybe you've never heard it in church before. Maybe it's something that's familiar to you. I don't know, but I'm going to say it anyway. Can I just reassure you that your doubts, whatever doubts you have about this book, whatever doubts you have about spirituality, whatever you doubts you have about the institution of the church or, or church people or religious people, whatever doubts you have about God or about Jesus or any of those things, can I just assure you that there is not one thing about your doubts that intimidates God? Not one thing. I mean, He's God. I think he can take your questions. Not only is he not intimidated by your doubts, he's not offended by them either. How many times do we see Jesus ask a question and then people give some kind of misguided, silly answer and then he lovingly and carefully corrects them right back to the truth? How many times do we see people show up in Jesus' face and ask him a question, and instead of, I can't believe you asked, I can't believe you asked, how stupid that you asked, that's not what Jesus does. We never see that one time. What we see Jesus do is very lovingly and very carefully give an answer that points them to the truth. Proverbs says that it's the glory of God to conceal a matter. And it's the glory of kings to reveal a matter. Actually, Proverbs chapter 2 says this. It says that God, verse 5, he takes great delight in making his wisdom known to you. So I think it might be helpful and just really important for you to know. You need to hear someone who believes passionately that Jesus is who he said he was and can do what he said he can do. You need to hear someone say that whatever doubts you have, they don't intimidate God, and they don't offend God. And here's one of the things I hope for us as Jesus people. I hope this is the place we can have those awkward conversations. I hope this is the place where we can ask those questions and go, man, I'm really struggling with this idea. Let's look at the book and see what it says. I hope we can be Jesus people that people see Jesus in and not the other thing. And I think some of that is to just honor each other's doubts. You see, because there's this movement today, and it's been around for a while, and it's this movement known as deconstruction. It's the idea that because I've had so many bad experiences, not with Jesus and not with the Bible, but because I've had so many bad experiences with Jesus, I'm going to deconstruct my faith. Everything I learned in Sunday school and VBS, all of my previous traditions and experiences, I'm going to pick those things apart one piece at a time until because I've deconstructed my faith, it just leads to this level of deconstruction that's no longer about expressing my doubts and seeking answers. It's really just about reinforcing my disbelief. 
And we're in that generation where deconstruction isn't just happening. Deconstruction is popular. It's very popular for us to go, oh, I'm just not going to do it that way because that's what some old guy said was important and that's what some old book said was important. Here's what happens with deconstruction. There's a path for deconstruction. And maybe you've experienced this in your own life. Maybe you've felt it. Here's what the path of deconstruction look like. looks like. It begins with disappointment. Disappointment in a person. Disappointment in someone's actions or in someone's choices. Usually it's disappointment with someone like me who preaches the gospel on a regular basis. Often it's disappointment with someone like you who attends church on a frequent basis. Or someone who's a Sunday school teacher or someone who's just known for their, you know, their, their moral goodness and they claim faith in Christ as the reason for it. Deconstruction almost always begins with one kind of disappointment someone has in a person, but not the person of Jesus. Several years ago, there was a book written called, They Like Jesus, But They Don't Like the Church. And what they're really saying is, I don't know a whole lot of people who will say, I don't like Jesus, but I do know a lot of people who will say, I am terribly disappointed in instituted, organized religion and the people who make that up. It always begins with disappointment. And that disappointment leads to depression, clinical or otherwise. It just leads to a kind of depression. As you question everything you think you know about God and everything you think your life is based on, that disappointment leads to depression, that depression leads to doubt, and and if you don't handle it well, then that doubt becomes disbelief. And don't you see that in Thomas's life? Here, Thomas has spent the last three and a half years walking with Jesus, experiencing his miracles, eating the fish and the bread that Jesus miraculously provided, watching Jesus heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons and cleanse lepers. He's experienced all of that, and at the highest point is when Jesus is killed. And man, Jesus, I know you said you're coming back, but I've never seen that, and I still haven't, Thomas would say. So here Thomas is, just disappointed. That becomes depression, which becomes doubt, which, if we're not careful, can become disbelief. That may be the path that you're walking right now. I hope you'll pay attention to this passage. Look at what Jesus does. John chapter 20, verse 24 Now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. I need some proof, Jesus. Remember, he's not intimidated or bothered by our doubts. What does Jesus do? And after eight days, his disciples were again inside. This time, Thomas was with Jesus' people, and Jesus showed up. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst, and here's what he said. Peace to you. Every disappointment, every failure, every discouragement, peace to you. You see, for every stop, Along the way of our road to deconstruction, there's a priority that Jesus has for us. 
And it begins with peace. Did you notice that in this passage? You've got it in verse 26, peace to you. But when you go back to verse 19, it's, it's one of the first things he says. For fear of the Jews, the disciples were assembled together. Thomas wasn't there. Jesus came and stood in their midst and he said to them, peace be with you. In the middle of your discouragement, in the middle of your despair, in the middle of your depression, in the middle of your disappointment, Jesus shows up and says, peace I'm giving to you. And then he does something awkward and a little crazy. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Wait, that's the space where the nails were. That's where the spear went. That's Wow, that's proof. And then he says it again, verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, in the middle of this awkward moment, hey, look at where the nails were. Look at the spear that was in my side. Peace to you. You see, here's the priority that Jesus has in confronting your doubts. When I say the word confronting, it sounds aggressive. I don't really mean it that way. He wants to come alongside you, to walk with you in your doubts. And here's how he does it. First, he brings peace. Then he brings purpose. Then he shows you proof. And then out of that proof, he gives you power. Look again at verse uh, verse 21. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the Father has sent me. I also send you. That's purpose. He gave them peace, then he showed them their purpose. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Well, there's power. There's power in the proof. There's power in the peace. There's power in the purpose. And here's the problem that we have. If you are in the middle of deconstructing your faith, I can almost guarantee that it's not because of something Jesus did or didn't do. It's because of some disappointment some guy like me or someone involved in a religious institution has committed against you. It's really, really easy for us to point our fingers at one another and just go, hypocrite, hypocrite, hypocrite. It's just so easy to do because we're all so broken. I had an old pastor friend who used to say, we ought to recognize that the church has never been a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And if it's a hospital for sinners, then we ought to expect that there's going to come a point when I do something that's disappointing and that you're going to do something that's disappointing. And it's why grace and mercy and forgiveness for one another is just so important. The question isn't if we will disappoint one another. As people, the question is, when will we disappoint one another? How bad will it be? And what will we do when it happens? Will the disappointment we experience be the reason I begin to disbelieve what God's done in my heart? Or will I recognize, can we each recognize that we're all broken, we're all sinners saved by grace, and we all have this opportunity in the middle of every difficult circumstance and every awkward conversation and every difficult question, because Jesus has so forgiven our sin, He has given us His mercy, His grace, His loving kindness, His forgiveness, because He's so filled us with that, that in that moment of disappointment or discouragement or depression, now I can share that with you. And when I'm in that space, you can share that with me. And instead of becoming the reason someone doesn't believe, 
you become the proof for why someone can't help but believe. See, that's the priority that Jesus has in all of this. So Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. That's the power and the proof. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they're retained. Now, this is not Jesus' way of saying, now I've given you authority to go out and forgive sins. He's actually saying, I've given you the gospel. And in carrying the gospel and sharing the gospel with people, you're giving them an opportunity to receive the forgiveness of God. And every time you refuse to speak up, it's almost like you're restricting them from the opportunity to receive the grace and the forgiveness and the love that you've received from Jesus. So speak up. Carry your faith well. Don't be the reason someone chooses not to believe. Be the people that when Jesus shows up, he shows up in your midst and others, they see it and they believe it and they're challenged and they're encouraged by it. And then here's the last thing that I just find fascinating. He provides proof. Look at my hands, look at my side. Here's he does so without any, he doesn't begrudge it at all. He just says, well, if you need proof, look. It, here it is. What's our proof today? That last passage, last part of the passage, verse 29, Jesus said to them, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about us. We've not seen, and yet we believe. And at the same time, for those of us who are just more comfortable with proof, without taking offense, without being bothered, without being intimidated at all, Jesus, God, they look to us and they say, you need some proof? Here, let me write it down for you. And, and this book becomes remarkable proof that Jesus is who he said he was, that he could do what he said he could do, and that this book tells the story of the foundation of our faith, which is the resurrection of Jesus, that he is the Messiah, the one who would free his people from their sin. Here's the thing. I've always believed that this book, the best seminary in the world. And I'm not talking about the kind of seminary you attend and get grades for. The best seminary in the world is the open Bible. And the best seminary professor in the world is the Holy Spirit. And as a believer and follower of Christ, you have instant access to both. The best seminary, the open Bible, and the best seminary professor in the world, the Holy Spirit. As a believer, Jesus lives in you and sits by you to help you understand what this book says. And the truth is, every one of us in this room, including me, including Chris, including anyone who ever stands on this platform, we're nothing but students together in the classroom of faith that God has designed for us all. As a pastor, I'm one of those students that God's looked at and said, hey, I need you to tell everybody there's going to be a test and it's going to be over the book and I just need you to remind people of that on a weekly basis. Hey, there's a test coming and it's going to be over this book. You need proof? Look right here. 
oh, but Chad, that was written so many years ago. We don't have enough evidence. There's so many different interpretations. There's so many ways to push back on whether or not what's written in this book is true. Well, take a look at this picture with me for just a moment. Let's just not talk spiritually for a minute. Let's talk science for just a minute. Archaeologists, historians, all of those people who are academics who would set faith aside and ask the question about the accuracy of this book, there's just some things that's really easy for us to see. Take a look at that dark red circle right there in the middle. See how big that is compared to all the other yellow circles? And then you've got the pinker circle, the lighter, kind of the lighter red, which is the much bigger circle. Historically, when when historians, archaeologists, and academics, when they are looking at a document and asking the question, is it accurate to its original intent, they begin asking questions like, well, how many copies of it do we have? Of those copies, how much do those copies agree with one another? Like, are they saying the same? Hey, they all said this is the book of Matthew, but is it saying the same things between the copies? How close are those copies to the time when the event actually happened? How far back does that actually go? That red circle represents 5,795 Greek texts that are all New Testament texts. They go back as far as within 40 years of when Jesus rose from the dead. We have 5,795 different ancient Greek documents, some of them that go all the way back to within 40 years of when Jesus did what he did to show that what we have in this New Testament is accurate, authoritative, and real evidence. The bigger circle The 17,974 other documents are are translations of those 5,800 documents, some of them that go back 200, 300 years right after after the the, the resurrection, 200 to 300 years after the resurrection. Some of them are in Latin, some are in Syriac, some of them are are in Armenian and Ethiopian and several Coptic, several other languages. Together, that's 24,000 archaeological, historically accurate documents that point to the fact, some of them going back to within 40 years of the resurrection, to say that this book that we hold in our hand today is accurate and authoritative. It's, it's really interesting. Uh, my sons, two of my sons, got to go to Dublin with the Owasso High School Band and march in the St. Patrick's Day Parade. And we had the privilege of being able to go with them. It was an incredible trip. It was the trip of a lifetime. I got to go to Trinity College in Dublin, Ireland. And at Trinity College is the old library, the long room. It's ruined me for building a house because it is, it is the room I want to build in my house. It's filled with incredible books. But in that library... It houses the Book of Kells. The Book of Kells is a Latin illuminated manuscript of of all four Gospels of the New Testament. It was commissioned in the year 800, around the year 800. So do the math, that's a long time ago. Around the year 800, this copy of the Gospels was created. All of this evidence, 24,000 historic documents, It includes the book of Kells. I got to see it. This copy of the New Testament that I read today, the the four Gospels, 99.5% of what's said in the book of Kells is exactly what I read in this English New Testament today. We have a tremendous amount of scientific evidence to prove that what's said in this book, historically, archaeologically, is accurate 
to the original manuscripts. Now, what are all those other yellow dots that are up there? Well, the big one is Homer and the Iliad. How many of you got to enjoy reading through that poem in English? <laughs> Good job. Um, there are only about 1,700 manuscripts that demonstrate that what we read when we read Homer's Iliad, that it's accurate to the author's intent. And of those 1,700, the earliest dates back to 400 years after it was written. Bible dates back to 40 years after the event happened. Homer's Iliad, the next largest one, 400 years later. We have more evidence for the authenticity and accuracy of this book than we do for Homer's Iliad, than we do for the works of Caesar, the works of Plato, the works of Aristotle, the works of Pliny, the works of um, Tacitus, and all of those ancient historians. We have more reason to have confidence in this book than any of those other documents that are written, not spiritually, scientifically. You need proof? Well, there it is. I hope today that you'll bring your doubts to God. I hope that we can be the people. I hope that we can be the people who can sit comfortably in a room with, filled with uncomfortable questions and that together we will go, I may not know the answer to that. And my answer may be, I don't know, it may discourage you. My answer may be offensive to you. But here's what we're both going to do. You're going to set aside your preconceived ideas, and I'm going to set aside my preconceived ideas. I'm going to set aside my politics and my economics. I'm going to set aside my social predisposition. I'm going to set all those things aside because I know this book is accurate. So let's look and see. What does God say? And let's figure this out together. Because when Jesus shows up, he brings a priority. That priority begins with peace. And then it becomes purpose. Why? 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 What purpose? Well, as God sent me, so send I you. You need some proof? It's right here. And then out of that, God gives us the power to go and be the Jesus people. That when we come together, Jesus shows up. When I was 17 years old, I was a junior in high school. And I had a history teacher at Westmore High School who challenged us. It was world history. She challenged us to read the Quran and the Book of Mormon. She challenged us to read several New Age texts. And I was already that geek kid who just loved mythology. So I had already read all about the Greek gods and the Nordic gods. And it's, you read about those, it's like reading Marvel, right? You just like, it's like a Marvel movie and all those things. So I was already doing that. And so here's this world history professor challenging me to read that. And in that moment as I'm reading it, the Quran specifically... And it's saying of itself, well, this is the word of the Lord. You know, it's I'm in, in their way. It says, this, this is the book of God. It created in me some significant doubts in my faith. Well, the Quran says it's the book of God, and my book says it's the book of God, and the Book of Mormon says it's the book of God, and this New Age stuff doesn't say it's the book of God, but it does say some clever things that have the sound of wisdom and seem to work for some people. Suddenly, this, I was saved as a nine-year-old, right? I, I, I got saved in church. I grew up in a family of faith. My parents and grandparents before me were believers, and so here I am. I just believe this because I believe this. And so as I started asking, God, why is my book any better than these books? 
And in me, it grew these doubts. I scared my parents to death because the doubts became depression. And uh, I'd already had some disappointing experiences with church people, right? So I had plenty of evidence, and you don't know what you're doing. And I struggled through that. And so I had some friends who were Jesus people. They didn't give me answers. They gave me questions. And they said, you ought to ask this question about this book, the Bible. And then you ought to ask the same question about the Quran. And then you ought to ask the same question about the Book of Mormon. They gave me a series of questions to ask, and so I did. They weren't intimidated by my doubts. They weren't offended with my questions. They just said, hey, well, hey, here's a path. Let's explore this together. And I investigated it, and I studied it. And on the other side of that doubt and depression, on the other side, what came out? Well, at nine, I had the faith of a nine-year-old. I had a childlike faith. And what came out the other side was that childlike faith still existed, but it matured into an adult faith that was able to articulate, this is not the faith of my parents, and this is not the faith of my culture. This is the faith that's based and founded in the truth of God's word, which I know to be sufficient and which I know to be true, not because mom said so and not because my preacher said so, but because I've looked into it myself. I've studied it, and spiritually and scientifically, it's consistent in every way, and it's accurate, and it's effective for my life. And these other books, these other works, they're interesting, they're entertaining, but they are not true. This one is. So maybe you stand with Doubting Thomas today. Welcome. We're glad you're here. Ask your questions. And let's explore what God has to say together. And maybe you're a church person, but you're not a Jesus person. And maybe you're the one who's giving people reason to deny their faith. Today you should repent. And could I introduce you to Jesus? He died on the cross and he rose from the dead so that you could be forgiven of that very thing. Let's bow our head and close our eyes for just a moment. Joe's going to come back and we're going to sing together. And if you're someone who has questions and you want to know more about what it means to trust in Jesus, you want to understand more about this, I'll be down front. You can come ask me some questions. There'll be people in the foyer in the back. They would be glad to answer your questions. Honestly, there are Jesus people all around you, and they would be happy to talk to you. They'd be happy to introduce you to Jesus. And so ask them your questions. This is a place where it's safe to do that. Do that as we sing. And then for those of you who are church people, but you haven't yet become Jesus people, give it up. Stop trying so hard. Relax. Give your life to Christ. And maybe you need to come to this altar and repent. Father, forgive me. I don't want to be the one who gets in anyone's way anymore. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today. Thanks for this congregation. 
for who we are as Jesus people, for the ways they've encouraged me and they've encouraged Chris and so many other families before us in times of crisis. Thank you for the evidence that you've given to us that your word is true and is faithful. Would you give us a passion to read it, to know it, and to understand it? More than that, through your spirit, would you help us to live it? Would we be people who fulfill your purpose? Would we be instruments of peace in the lives of others? For those who are deconstructing their faith, who are struggling with doubts and depression, with all of those things, Father, would you bring comfort to them and bring your peace? Would you allow them to recognize the people here and the place here? This is a safe place for us to have those conversations and that every conversation points right back to the truth that's preached from this book that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, and that's why we can be forgiven and have faith in you. So, Father, please fill us with your Spirit and the fruit of your Spirit and allow us to repent today. Allow us to follow you today. Allow us to experience your peace and your purpose. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <laughs>